Welcome back to some Albaroon podcast. You're about to listen to part B of my story. Darren Payne, one of the hosts of the podcast, along with David Nancaro and Gary O'Donnell. The first of three episodes that will be focused on us. Um, I can ensure you we're not being self-indulgent or anything like that. Um, we just uh, thought it might be a bit of an idea for for you guys to listen about our story. We've had a lot of questions about who we are as the host, so um, that's why we're doing that. If you haven't listened to part A of my story, I strongly encourage you to do that for a bit of context for part B. If not, let's get back to the podcast. Where the fuck were we? (laughs) We're back. Where were we? What did we talk about? I I cannot, we should have fucking remembered. I can't remember either. Come on, fucking hell, you guys are podcast hosts. I'm sick of talking to you. Sick of it, aren't you? So tell us about, you (laughs) met, so it was Darren Darren, Darren in 97 here, was it? Yes. Yes. And then, so how long were you here with her? Yeah, so I come over here in 97 in Jan um, and then we went back or we went to Melbourne in um, 2000. Why would she come back? Was she not comfortable here or she wanted to – did she commit to you to go to Melbourne for a little while? Yeah, so what happened, yeah, so we were 22, 21, 22 and then when we met and then um, I was at – did a sports science degree, human movement at UWA – and then I couldn't really get a job. I finished that and um, ended up with a job in Katanning in a country town in uh, WA down down south and um, was working on the council there as the recreation manager. At the leisure centre. At the leisure centre. And uh, it's the best recreation centre going around. It was um, four basketball courts, hockey fields, soccer fields, two footy ovals in a country town. It was an unbelievable place. They did a great Must job. have been a marginal election seat in a state <laughs> government election, was it? Possibly, yeah. possibly. But I was the second uh, manager there, the first manager. Uh, there was a there was a Indigenous team and a white team, football teams there, and they didn't like each other. And uh, there was a massive, massive fight, and the original manager of the rec centre had his jaw broken um, so when I got there for the job interview, they said, um, you've got the job, but you can't play footy. And I really wanted to play country footy. I just thought country town, country footy, rec centre, how, how good's this going to be? And then, but I hadn't worked. So I was 25, hadn't worked. I worked a couple of times in dad's restaurants and quit the day after cause I just didn't want to do it. So I thought, oh, well, it's time for me to actually work. I said, no worries. I won't play footy. And it was the worst thing ever because all the, the country people there thought, well, they found out that I'd played an okay level of footy and they thought I didn't want to play their lower level of footy and thought I was up myself. And it was chaos. It's come across earlier in this podcast, you're up yourself. <laughs> the, see, you, weren't you saying they were the best six games that have ever been played? Yeah, yeah. apparently. Yeah. It was a radio contest, I think I called it. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so I remember being at the pub. Darren and I went to the pub and um, – I had two big farmers, massive farmers, come up to me in the corner and grabbed me and pushed me in the corner and said, why do you want to play with us? You're fucking arrogant. You fucking, you think you're too good for us. Fuck you. Rah, rah. And I'm like, mate, what's going on? It's the first time I went to the pub. You know, I, you know I'm lover, not a fighter, and had no reaction and just said, oh, look, I'll talk to you about it. Told them what happened. Next day, just chaos. Just I had 
five or six country teams at the rec centre before I got to work to, for me to play for them. And I was just like, wow, what is going on here? So I went to the CEO and said, look, this is what's happened last night. I'm happy not to play footy. Like, um, just so you know, like, <laughs> and I was so naive. I come from Melbourne, country town. I really had no idea. So, and it was just, uh, it was just so bad. And in the end, they just, um, they disappeared because the shy said not, not happening. So that was fine. And then, um, the locals didn't really believe that that was the case. So Darren and I copped a really hard time. She was, um, um, you know, the nurses in the hospital. Darren's a nurse. Made it really tough for her. We'd go to IGA or whatever it was there and people wouldn't move their trolleys for us to get down the aisle. Um, yeah, so it was just really strange time, like just really strange. Couldn't go out because people just didn't like us. So we're in a country town going, this is so strange. So we'd come back to Perth every weekend and then go back on Monday, Friday and yeah, it was nuts. So in the end, it just got too much. Um, that story can go on and on. And that on. didn't last long, so you're over to Melbourne. Um, yeah, I went to Melbourne, yep. and then um, that's where I'd come across, just playing with my mates from Box Hill, yep. which was 96. So they were at North Ringwood, and that's how I got into finance with that job. So um, Darren um, thought long and hard about whether she's going to come. She was at the last stages of converting from a nurse to an AMBO. And made a big commitment to me at 25, 26 and to us to, to not finish that and come, come to Melbourne. So that's been a big regret for me that it's a shame she didn't finish that. I encouraged her to finish it in Melbourne, but apparently it was very different. So, yeah, it's a shame she didn't finish that because she went through a bit of grief to actually get to that point. Um, yeah, so then we were in Melbourne and then had, uh, had Max and Molly over there. and um, got where, were you, where were you living then? Um, we lived in a couple of places. lived in Carlton. I always wanted to live in a city around Brunswick Street for a year. That was Maxie's first home. And then we went to Hoddle. We sort of went further away from inner city as we got slightly older. So we went to Heidelberg and then Doncaster and then ended up in a um, place in Warrenwood, in between Ringwood and Warrendite. So that was the house that we um, that we uh, ended up in. And then we split up and uh, she brought the kids back to Perth. So... Had a good finance business, had 14 staff at one stage and, yeah, so it was flying and then it was just too hard to leave. So, And I didn't want to live in WA again. Like I, I left WA after Catanning because I missed a lot of my mates and family. So um, <clears throat> during that time... You were coming across <coughs> from time to time, were you? Yeah, yeah every 10 days. So Every 10 days you were flying to Perth yeah, from so, Melbourne. Yeah, so Darren and I bought a house um, together that they still live in. Yep. Um, that we shared uh, the cost of early and uh, I would come back every 10 days. Like, yeah, so um, it was a tough time, mate. It was a awesome. very, very tough time for everyone. For, yep. you know, but, uh, yeah, the kids were four and two, so they probably ignorantly unaware. But, yeah, so i come back every 10 days and uh, back home uh, – sorry, here for four days, back home for 10 days. How long did that go on for? Seven months. Seven months. So why did you then moved back to Perth? Yeah, so... Why, why did that... Okay, yeah. we can sense that there was one reason, but why did you move back to Perth essentially? 100% just to be with the kids. Like I just... I didn't want to be a dad that was absent. So it just got... You know, in one sense it got too hard. And... But fundamentally, because they were so young, I was like, no, nah, I just want to be with the kids. So I left my 
family and friends and everything else that I had there, sold the business um, and just had to start again. And look, I, and it was, I'd never had any adversity in my life. So this is interesting for people to think about for themselves. Like everything, it, as much as footy didn't work out, it wasn't the end of the world. Like it wasn't like I had a massive, um, <laughs> to be honest, the, the issues of that were later in life more than actually in the moment. So, um, you know, it was the, f- I had no resilience zero resilience like I had nothing had gone wrong I remember asking mum when I was in that I, you know, I got depressed and had some real issues with with things and then I remember asking mum like did you used to protect me from stuff and I, that's why you think you're doing the right thing but I actually you know you haven't given me any experience to deal with bad stuff and she goes no nothing actually went wrong like you had good family and good mates and you met girls and when you went to ANZ you did well there and Everything actually went well, but I actually had zero resilience. So it's been a big thing for me as a parent that when Max and Molly are going through some stuff, and they've had a blessed upbringing as well, but when they've had their issues, actually just let them sit in it and try and build that muscle a bit because um, I just had no idea how to cope. Um, but at the same time, I was going from a really close family, Nick group, really close group of friends, and then obviously from a footy club perspective, you've got mates that are close and business was good and everything else to the other side of Australia um, that I left because I was homesick by myself with no business, no sporting club, no friends, no family. And that was uh, the hardest time of my life, 100%. But I don't regret it because I've got a great relationship with the kids and it's taught me so much around um, – getting through stuff and the, the ability to actually do what you don't think you can do because um, there were times there that I didn't think that I actually would get through it. But, yeah, just being part of a community has been a huge, huge impact on that, um, which is, you know, life experiences influence what you do the next day, don't they? Sure. So, yeah, hardest thing I've ever done by a million times, but I don't regret it because um, – the relationship I've got with my kids and everything else, and I met you two fellas. Well, win-win. Um, did you talk Sorry. about that before you made the call? Was that a debate, clear debate in your head? You'd gone through a tough seven months of that travel routine, which sounds horrendous. The young kids who you want to be with, who did you talk to? Did you talk to your parents, talk to friends, um, talk to your sister? I was, you- I was self-destructive, so I sort of disappeared a little bit away from, from my neck, like people who were close to me. But So I, was, I put them through a pretty rough time, to be honest. Um, I, I actually don't remember. I, yeah. I've lost four or five years of acute memory with stuff, with the depression and how much I was self-destructive. So um, I actually don't know. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. So that question, we should ask that question of your mum. Yeah, that's so the thing. Things that Amanda, mum, dad, and Amanda went and saw someone how to handle someone that's self-destructive with depression. I had no idea until years and years later. So, um, you know, but to have to go through that and then have the awareness of, and I can remember every every second of how it feels to be that low, hundred percent. What I did in between it, yeah, (laughs) I forget all that. But it's pretty scary to actually have that, and you know. It wasn't a big thing that actually happened. It just I, by comparison to you know a lot of the listeners and and friends that I know that have gone through some real grief, um, 
I just had no resilience to actually handle it. So for me, it was massive, but by comparison to how it actually is in the real world, it wasn't much at all. But to me, it was big. And that's what you need to remember that, yes, you can always have perspective that other people have got it worse, but uh, at the end of the day, you need to get through your own shit and uh, work out the best way to do it, whether that's by yourself. Some people don't want to talk to anyone about it, and that's how they deal with it. Um, I personally need to – I'm better around people. Yeah. I really struggled being by myself because I'd never been by myself ever. Yeah. Um, now I'm, I'm, I'm better at it and I've had to learn to do it and I'm okay at it, but I'm 100% better around people and I'm aware of it. So guess what I do? I put myself around people more than I don't because I like it. It makes me feel better. Self-awareness, Darren. Yeah. I've since learnt, though, that um, depression's real and, you know, sort of grew up in that bravado environment even though may not have been exactly that type of person. But there's definitely a part of me that was in that and uh, there's no doubt that uh, there's a difference between being sad and feeling down and um, being depressed, clinically, uh, clinically depressed or diagnosed depressed or whatever but there's a massive massive difference and i have no doubt that generations in the past have gone through the same things it just wasn't allowed to be spoken about so although i sort of probably found myself at the early stages of that late 2000 and probably six really but uh 2008 nine when i moved to perth um you know i was sort of half spoken about and i was uneducated on so many different things about real life um, especially this but uh, yeah it was something that um, I'm glad is now spoken more about it's awkward to talk about still um, but at the same time feel really content and proud of myself to be uh, vulnerable to talk about it not just now but I've been talking about it for years um, amongst my mates and family and different things so um, yeah anyone going through anything like that just uh be proud of yourself if you are actually going through it and then on the back end have actually got through it as well. So even if you haven't, it's okay. Just keep on uh, chipping away and keep talking to people and make sure you've got people around you that love you and make you feel good instead of make you feel bad and keep working around it and speaking to people that uh, can really help. Um, in your journey to Perth and yeah, you've talked about how hard it was to get here. Obviously, once you got here, you had to start again. And you'd been here before, so you knew a little bit. How did you end up at Wembley Veterans Football Club? Yeah, so they were just down the road from my house. Um, I was in survival mode, as I said. So I used to go and um, I, I guess you sort of naturally go towards things that you know and that you might be okay at, that you're familiar with. Um so I used to go and uh, watch the boys train and sit on the hill with a six-pack of beer. I used to walk down by myself and sit and watch you blokes train. So you didn't know anyone? No, didn't know anyone. And thought, geez, I can probably be okay out there. <laughs> I think I might be all right out there. Although I'm developing into 110 kilos, uh, what, what I'm still going to be all right. What year was this? So this was uh, 2009 to 2012, and I, I literally – Take the first six months out of it, I went every Wednesday. Didn't talk to anyone? Didn't Sat on the hill and went. had, my, had three or four of the beers, yep. popped back into the Wembley, 
had another pint and then went, went home. home. And, and when was your first interaction with someone from the club? Um, I finally got the courage to actually walk up and say, how are you going? And it was from him. Yeah. Justin Fromm was the coach and another fantastic moment in my football life. I was 110 kilos, believe it or not, at 5 foot 10. I'd smashed myself and uh, I've walked up and you're, unbeknown to me, you're about to have a uh, practice match and I've just walked up. And I can't remember if I spoke to said, who's the coach? And pointed out to Frommy, he was setting it up and then walked out there and uh, introduced myself and said, yeah, yeah, good, mate. Yeah, no, yeah, no worries. Yeah, yeah, we're about to have a practice match though, so... Are you ready? Are you ready? <laughs> I'm like, mate, I've done nothing but drink beer for six years. Um, <laughs> but uh, just, yeah, I'll be right. And he goes, Fit right in. He goes, oh, where do you normally play? And I said, centre. And he's looked me up and down like Bernie Quinlan used to after a body fat test. And he went, we'll start you in the forward pocket. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say, geez, you look like Billy McCormack. <laughs> yes, it was like Billy McCormack. <laughs> you, were, yeah, you and Billy so in the one centre square. No one else had fit oh, in. I know. <laughs> So, yeah, so that was like, oh, fucking great. Here we go again with footy. So, uh, But the best thing I've ever done in Perth is, is go to the – have the courage to get to that point. But I also recognise I wasn't ready, you know, the first three years. Footy, a, foot, a footy club, I've just said I'm better around people. That's me. I should have been able to – if in a good headspace, I could walk into that any day of the week. So the fact it took me three years is, is really bizarre and it's a blur, but uh, – the courage to actually walk in, I'm proud of. Yeah, the and, the and fact it changed were, my life. The fact that you were yep. going there every Wednesday without having – all those blokes, without them knowing it, they were your community. They were your community. That's you true. were uh, Yep, you were working, whatever you were doing. Yeah, Wednesday night I'm going there. I'll take my six back, whatever. I'll sit on the hill and I'll watch them. They were your you, – th- there was your connection – Without having the direct connection yet. That's so true. Instead of sitting at home by myself, which I did a lot of, um, which you got no chance of bloody meeting anybody, that's a good point. Never thought of that. Really good point. Slow burn to get there. Yeah. And, and a lot of, I think a lot of awareness is, is often hindsight, clearly, retrospectively. So a lot of mine is, is 100, and because I have been a thinker ever since grade three at Miss Rothman, hopefully you're listening. Tables and chairs. Um, that's just who I am and I've learned to accept it and uh, love it, to be honest. So, and, and there's sometimes it does my head in, does my friends and definitely Tara's head in and my sister and mum and dad. But we also get stuff done and created and spoken about that maybe others don't. So I've, I've learned to accept that that's who I am and put myself in that position to feel good. I've only got one more question. Far away, Dave. I'd like to hear Darren's perspective. And you've got the floor for as long as you want, mate, because we're in your house. You've got the mic. You've got the fucking headphones. Tell us about the game you arranged for the Wembley Veterans Football Club on the MCG. And I'm going to interject, but I'd like you to tell your version of the story. Um, Were you the main driver of this? Okay. That is sensational. Gary, I didn't ask you to interrupt. Sensational. He, he I want was, to hear this. Let's he go. He was the Shut creator. Up, Mate, Go. fantastic. From, from scratch, please, Darren. Um, from conception. Yeah, there you go. So, um, yeah, so I, I couldn't play. I played a couple of games over the years with the boys, but the body was completely broken down. So I sort of lost my sense of community and attachment to the footy club when I couldn't play because, you know, I'd go down and watch the boys train and 
it was different to when I was there by myself. I actually wanted to be a part of it. So it was annoying. So I actually didn't – I wasn't at the club for about a year. I was in and out. I would see the boys at the pub and with my close friends, but one of the, I can't remember who recognised it, but they asked if I was interested in being coach. So I would sort of jumped at that opportunity once we got through all the politics of that, that um, I was back. I was back at the club. So – I sort of thought I'm not going to waste my opportunity here to, to try and get as many people to love this place as we can and not many people get to play on the MCG um, and I'd stumbled across uh, Hawthorne's corporate division, sell it to Meyer, Coles, you know, whoever, sell it every year for $60,000 and then... These corporate guys get their supplies and their staff and they get to play a bit of kick and giggle on the MCG. So I thought, well, I did the maths and went, well, 60000 divided by 40, it's 1500 bucks each. I reckon we might be half a chance. I spoke to Hawthorne and said, look, part of this footy club, really love to get the boys to a trip to Melbourne regardless. Um, but what are the chances of us actually playing a game against each other on the MCG instead of you doing a kick and giggle with the corporates? And this is... Uh, prior to a Hawthorne game, like on... Yeah, so we played okay. Friday night yeah. under lights before okay. Hawthorne, Sydney, yeah. Yep, under lights, we'll get yeah. to that. Well, sort of lights, yeah. We'll <laughs> they had the... We'll they, get to it. They, they had the going. night lights on. Back, go back, go back. Yeah, so and they were, they were surprised, they were excited, but they were like, really? Like, you're going to pay 60 grand from WA, old men's footy? Mate, if you can pay your 60, first in best dressed. And I said, well, can you give me three weeks... So I'm happy to pay a deposit to hold it. So I paid five grand to hold it. I don't know how many people know that, but shut up. I didn't know that. Shut up. So they they promised that they would hold it for five. I was in reasonably early. So anyway, cut long story short, come to training and it was my first year, I think, maybe the start of the second, and said to the boys at that ground where you were that first training night and said, look, this opportunity is there. Who's interested? And I thought we'd get one team and then we'd have to play a team in Victoria and I was worried about that because whoever they get somewhere else, they either we're going to be too full on or they're going to get a young team. Yep. But we had, to, we had to cap it at 40. We had nearly 50 people who were interested. So I'm um, trying to herd 40-odd blokes or 50-odd blokes to pay $1,500 to play on the MCG, book flights, hotels was a full-time okay. job. Like to actually get everyone there was unbelievable but we did it and 21 of the 40 had never been to the mcg ever incredible incredible ever been to yeah. the mcg let alone in the change rooms playing a game unbelievable it was the best day ever yep it was so good so the coaches were Coach of the two teams were Paul Salmon. He could have bent over and there'd be more light because he reckons the sun <laughs> shines out of his ass. So you would have had just which, him bend over. Which became clear. Yep. And yeah, the other coach. Paul Salmon and uh, Daniel Harford. Yeah. They, were, they were great. Two they, great, they were really great people. Yeah. yeah. So, no, that was a special time. There was, uh, yeah, get a lot of, lot of the boys, you know, thankful for that opportunity. But once again, creating something for others was just so cool and, yeah. 21 of the 40 had never, ever been to the MCG. I they, will, they will never forget it either. As a Victorian, I Ted's back. But, uh, yeah, as a Victorian, I couldn't believe that. Couldn't believe it. Very good. Very good, Dave. 
Very good, Gary. I think we're we're almost we've got what we wanted tonight. I reckon, Dave. Have you got what today? you wanted, Darren? Well, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's been great, been great to talk and somewhat cathartic, actually. Um, so yeah, thanks for the the opportunity. It's a bit of a strange one being the guest of a podcast that we've created together. So good experience at the same time. So um, hopefully the story uh, wasn't too boring and too depressing. But um, I just wanted to. Wanted to be known that I, I've never been happier than I am right now. I uh, feel like I've really understand myself, and I've put a lot of work in on that. Um, having met Tara three years or so ago, uh, we've got some really exciting plans together as a couple, um, which a lot of it includes traveling uh, with my kids as well. They're becoming young adults, nineteen and sixteen, so I've got some really exciting plans outside of work together. Um, but then within work, the we touched on it uh, with the new business called The Collective Effect, um, just a culmination of all of my experiences really, but also um, I think it's satisfying a need for small businesses to make time, like we talk about on the podcast, make time for themselves to make sure that they, their business can last and their work ethic can last. So creating a lot of programs within the business for small business people to really drill down on where they spend their time and things that they need to improve both within their business and, and personally. So I can't wait to, to launch that over the coming weeks. Um, and on the back of that, uh, I've got a combi, as you guys know, that I've converted to a bar. It's got four beer taps. So that's going to be the mascot of sorts because we're, we're also as part of the collective effect. We'll be putting on events for, for the members, so both the small business members and also the individual members within the business. So we'll be putting on parties and getting people together from that end to make sure that we're promoting everyone and encouraging everybody to have fun while they're still working their ass off as well. So, yeah, look, I, I just couldn't be happier with where things are at. So um, but I want to make sure that everyone understands I've had an amazing life and the, the issues I've had are very, very small, but uh, they were mine. So you can't underestimate people's issues regardless of any experience or upbringing because they're only their own so that's one thing i will say because um yeah because everyone goes through their own things uh thanks for coming mate thanks for listening to the first of three episodes on the hosts of some elbow room podcast and i hope you enjoyed the story of my brother darren payne the next episode will be on David Nankaro, otherwise known as Nankers, who has a sensational story of saying yes a lot more than no to life, which has provided him with an amazing amount of experiences. It's a terrific story, so please subscribe to Apple and or Spotify podcast to keep up to date and also join the boys on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter at Some Elbow Room Podcast. If you need to get in touch with them, please do so via email to darren at thecollectiveeffect.com.au. Otherwise, as the boys say, make sure you create some time to give yourself some elbow room to do more of the things that you love. Thanks for listening and take care.